Welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver. And I'm Courtney, a white mom from Los Angeles. This is the final episode of Between We and They, a school integration story, and it's a bit of an epilogue. I caught up with Beth recently as her second year at their new school was starting to see how she was doing. Her district, like many urban districts, is confronting declining enrollment and beginning talks about school closure, school consolidation, and a possible redrawing of boundaries. But first, Beth saw some things over the summer that made her think that white and privileged parents are starting to think and talk about her school as a hidden gem, a school that their crowd hasn't discovered yet, but that once they do, they may flock to. And this concerns her. Oh my God, I hate to even say it, that my girl's school might be a hidden gem. It kills me to say that. And I worried and I wondered about it for the whole first year, and I I just finally faced that fact. Beth worries that she inadvertently enrolled her daughters in an anomaly, a good school that just happens to be poorly rated. It's a funny thing to feel bad that a school is good, that it is a gem, hidden or otherwise. Beth isn't feeling guilty about taking spots from other children. Her school is under-enrolled, and she certainly isn't upset about the school actually being good. She's grateful. It's just the implications for the future. There was a post last week, and this is what got me going on this. There is a parent there. I believe she's white. I don't know who she is, but she talked about She just talked it up. I don't know that she used the expression hidden gem, but she really talked it up. The principal's amazing. The teachers are great. It's been wonderful for my kid. And it's as soon as privileged parent, white parents hear more about it. She, these are not her words, but basically the message I got was privileged parents hear about this. There will be an influx of parents. Right now it's a trickle of white privileged parents, but there will be an influx as soon as more parents hear about it. And so I just feel like a fraud and just kind of horribly guilty if I am the one who's leading the charge to gentrify this school. Like, oh my God, it kind of makes me sick to think about. Schools that get marked as hidden gems often see that massive influx of white and or privileged families that the social media poster was excited for. Beth, having attended a school made up of mostly white and or privileged families, sees danger in that. Danger to the existing school community, danger to the culture and values of the school, and danger that, once a school's reputation changes, the demographics can very quickly change as well. And she could find herself holding on to a resource, a seat at that school, that becomes something people are trying to hoard. Just thought, you know what, if I'm the first one to gentrify this school, then I absolutely will take responsibility for all those Gem collecting white people who come after me. I, I feel like my responsibility is to the school and the school community. And I'm sorry, I don't know how to say this diplomatically, but to take responsibility for the, the white and privileged people who come after me, work, work, work with them. You know, like you're here now. Let's, let's be here responsibly. Let's not try to take over the PTA. Wait a minute. There's three of you white people who want to be the, the PTA board. No, no, no. We don't do that here. You know what I mean? Like, so speak up about that. Like, that is where I feel like then I'm going to start to become more and more active. You know, because right now I feel like I want to support the, the school. You know, I'm not here to, like, direct it. So my responsibility, I feel like, will be to tend to the privileged people who come and want to take over and think this is not running right and running well and should be this and should be that and let's start this and let's do that. You know, like, that's going to be my quote-unquote job. That's how I see it. So if, if I am starting this wave of gentrification, like, so be it. I'll accept that. But, you know, at least I got to try to do this better 
or in a just way. Best school needs more students. And if some portion of those arriving bring more privilege with them, then that could push back on the concentration of vulnerability that exists at her school. But how those people show up matters. And Beth feels a need to protect her school. Protect it from the insidious, often well-meaning ways that new, whiter, privileged families can take over a school. A takeover that reorients the power dynamics and remakes the school culture in a white image of what a good school is. Her under-enrolled school needs more community members. It doesn't need more saviors. Beth spent the last year keeping a low profile at her daughter's school, trying to minimize the impacts that her privilege brings. Being in the school has given her a firsthand view of many of the inequities of our educational system, and so she finds herself channeling much of her energy at the district level, at the policies that have created and support these inequities. Partnering and getting involved with advocacy groups of color, she is now one of many people who are talking about the disparities between schools. As her district begins to consider what to do about declining enrollment, this feels like a more comfortable way for Beth to get involved. I mean, I think because I have a different investment in the schools now, I have been drawn into, felt compelled to, and I've taken an interest in uh, getting involved in the school district. And so what's going on here, and I think it's not unique to our district, is that we're losing kids. I think to other districts, displacement, gentrification, charter schools, and therefore the district has taken on this process of investigating, figuring out how to close schools. So our school is, I think, the least enrolled elementary school in the whole district. So it is under consideration for closure and or consolidation. So this may directly affect us. And it's significant to note that our school has the highest, if not one of the highest percentages and and number of African-American students, and it is the least enrolled school, elementary school in our district. And so it only makes sense to close those under-enrolled schools. It's not just her school, but several schools on the, quote, bad side of town that are being considered for closure or consolidation. And so I've, you know, joined other people in the district, other parents, um, community members in the district who do not want just these schools to close. We believe that we need to know our history and how the schools got this way was no accident. And it needs, the burden of school closures should not fall on the, the black and brown kids and the kids living in poverty. I just have become a little more involved in attending and speaking at, speaking publicly at, at school board meetings joining groups and participating in groups and evening meetings and strategizing and, you know, doing what I can. I participate as an active listener a lot. When I can speak up, I try to. It just feels like an injustice to close those schools without acknowledging and understanding how they got to be that way. Beth's district was engaged in community conversations as part of their efforts. She attended two of these meetings in her white privileged neighborhood at the end of last school year just wanted to hear how people were considering this the school closure process and how it might impact them and just just hear what the community was saying and I had an intention to say something because I, I anticipated the message coming from the the white and more privileged people so I kind of prepared some ideas talking points and I went to the first meeting expecting there to be about 20 people there it was in an elementary school library that was packed with 
I'm guessing 150 parents who were just irate at the idea that the school district would consider busing their children across town. Now, keep in mind that nobody had even mentioned busing, but somehow we're going to start talking about busing. Their argument is like, our school is functioning really well. We are at capacity. We're full. They can't even consider, why would they consider closing our school? Why would, who would we merge with? Who would we consolidate with? And if they do consider closing our school and busing our kids to the other side of town, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to leave. And so the comments that I heard were horrifying, honestly. And at certain couple of points during this first meeting, it felt, the parents felt like an angry mob you know, raising their hand, but shouting at the same time. Let me know when the district makes their decision because I need to start saving money now for private school. Just all kinds of comments. I just, I made a decision to not say anything because these parents scared me. <laughs> I didn't know any of them, but they knew each other. So you'd have a comment about busing and we're not going to do this. And why would you shut our school down? And then it would be like an uproar of applause and, and yeah, that's right. And it just felt like an angry mob at some point. So I just kind of observed with my jaw on the ground and left there really kind of shaken. And I still feel like I don't even have words for it, but I just felt like, was, was this 1960? Was I back in 1955? Like, yeah, I guess it's one thing to sort of read about it and see the videos, but to, to be witness and to feel the energy in the room, it just felt horrifying to me. It, it really kind of shook me. She was horrified by the vitriol and the anger. Some of it felt explicitly racist, but perhaps the scarier part was the less explicit, but no less dangerous rhetoric. No, it was a lot of coded, coded language. Their school, and if, if their school is the problem, why don't they fix their school? Our schools are fine. And then you'd have the more, say, veiled comments. Like, if we have to go to another school, guys, like, just, you know, we'll band together. We'll make the school better. We make it what it is, you know? And it was just like, ugh. Is that supposed to be a better way to look at this? Um, so no, it was just a lot of veiled racism. It's us and them and their school. And, and, and here's the thing that I just was clearly lost on everybody. Like These are white parents who I think for the most part were not bust when they were kids or teenagers. They were not bust. It was the black and brown kids' school on the other side of town that were shut. Those schools were shuttered, and the, and the kids in the predominantly black and brown communities were bused to the white schools and were made to feel unwelcome and had to enter hostile environments with teachers who did not reflect their culture and their language at the very least, never mind like the straight-up racism that they encountered here. So, so something was just so profoundly missing from this conversation. It was just so jarring to me. It just didn't feel rooted in reality. That That's how I kind of left this, these meetings. Like this is, we're not even in, they're not even operating in the same reality. The reality that allowed the parents at these meetings to say these things and applaud others who say these things is a reality in which segregated lives are the norm, in which we refers to a narrow sliver of people sharing our bubble. The bubble that shields us from truly understanding and caring about what happens to them. It really kind of hit me hard. And I don't, yeah, I don't mean to sound naive about it, but I feel like maybe a part of me felt like slapped in the face or just kind of sucker punched with this meeting. Like it really affected me. I, I felt like I kind of on the verge of tears, like, and it wasn't, it wasn't just sad tears. It was just horrified and outraged and just kind of overwhelmed with feeling, with emotion. It felt kind of hopeless. Yeah. 
really felt kind of hopeless. And honestly, I'm thinking about the third graders that I had been working with all year. You know, like these parents, these white privileged parents are talking about kids that I know and I care about. That's who they're talking about. How dare they? How dare they? They don't know these kids. And I, goodness, I don't know these kids either, but I feel a connection to them. And, and they're bright and they have potential and they are working their asses off. And, you know, like, how dare these parents speak like that about those quote unquote those kids, you know? I felt, I just felt kind of enraged about that. They are talking about my kids and they are talking about my family. And they're talking about my school and kids that I adore, quite frankly. They're talking about my kids' school that they have never looked at in a photograph, never mind walked in there to see, to see what's happening in there. I just, yeah, I just thought like the nerve of them. So it just, it just, I had such a strong emotional response to these meetings that I attended. Um, and I even feel it now. My heart is racing. I feel like a little bit lightheaded. <laughs> Just like I just feel the, emo- the all the emotion kind of rushing again. Being on the inside of their new school gave names, faces, personalities, hopes, dreams to what these white and or privileged parents were denigrating. Those meetings were unsettling, demoralizing, infuriating, and they left Beth questioning the value of pursuing more integration at the policy level. So, so I had a few reactions, you know, personal re- reactions, and one was like oh my goodness, how on earth could I sleep at night advocating for integration in this city or wanting integration in this city? I would never want to send black and brown kids to this white privileged school. I didn't even want my brown wealthy kids to be in the school with those kids. I just felt like, what am I doing? What can I, how can I do this work? And I'm not saying I was having a significant impact. I don't want to overblow my importance in what I was, what, whatever I was doing in the, you know, quote unquote, doing in the district. I just felt like I needed to back off and kind of reassess. So in some ways, I absolutely understand why the, the parents on, on the other side, hell no, they don't want to integrate their kids. Hell no, they don't want to send their kids to these schools over here. Absolutely. I absolutely 100% support that idea. And their uh, conviction, like, we are not sending our kids to that school. They're going to be treated hostily, you know, disciplined unfairly. They're going to be perceived as criminal and older than they are and hostile. And, you know, like, all these things, all those stereotypes. That's how, how those black and brown kids are going to be perceived. And hell no, they're not, they don't want to send their kids there. And I 100% support that. And then it just, it just sort of got me looking at this in, in a deeper way. And that is, like these two very entrenched positions, neither one wants to school their kids with the other. And one group, the white privilege group, they don't want to do that out of fear. And that fear is not based in reality. You know, what I identify as fear and hysteria is, it's just, it's simply straight up racism on the part of white people. I think these people don't even feel like they're being racist or holding racist beliefs, but ultimately it's not about their intention, it's about the impact always of what they say and how they say it and the way it lands. And the other group, the black and brown group, they don't want to do, you know, again, I'm speaking in general, and I don't know, really, I don't know what the heck I'm talking about, but this is how I started to see this, but they, but they don't want to integrate their kids, they don't want their kids to go to school on the other side of town as well, but their fears 
are based in reality and based in experience, their own experience. And that's true. Beth has upended her family life, her social world, and added hours of driving to her day for the sake of not supporting segregation. She spent the past few years feeling appalled at the resource hoarding at their old school, the opportunity monopolies that are made for and by white and privileged families and that continue to benefit them. She has spent the past 18 months thinking of little else. She's invested her family in this. But through this investment, Beth has come to see more nuance. She finds herself starting to speak up, worrying less about avoiding offense and more about advocating for justice. But she also finds herself questioning if she can responsibly be an advocate for integration. But what is the other option? And I feel like as a mixed person, you know, in a mixed family with multi-ethnic kids, like I kind of feel like, how can I advocate for the separation of people? Like, where would we be? You know, it's almost like this existential crisis. Like, where would we be? Where would my girls be? Because they don't fit in one side and they don't fit in the other. So where would be, we be? So it's almost like integration, like this, the way I think about this is like, I am trying to create a space for me, somebody who's not black or white, not brown or white, you know, like somebody trying to create a space for me and trying to create a space for my family and for my girls, you know, in this very polarized city, very polarized issue. Beth understands a little of why some black or brown parents do not support school desegregation. It's often been so brutal for their families. But she also believes that integration is how her mixed-race family can fit into her city and into America. Holding these beliefs at the same time is no easy task. She's feeling the tension between desegregation and integration. The efforts in her city and the ways in which they are being discussed are about desegregation. The moving of bodies, a focus on numbers, and the continuation of existing power structures. And this leaves Beth feeling uncertain about their value, at least in the short term. But she does remain steadfast in the belief that true integration, a focus on creating new forms of shared power, of finding shared humanity through being in community, is imperative. Not colonization, not gentrification, but meaningful integration. And to achieve that, we can't go about it in the ways we have in the past. I mean, I feel like it needs, it absolutely needs to be white and privileged people stepping up, really stepping up, doing the work, having the tools to enter schools that they would not choose. I think it's really time for us, those people, to do that work and to do it well and to do it right and to keep doing it after they make mistakes, after we make mistakes, and just be there show up and make an effort every single day. Make an effort to belong, to be a part of the community. Not take it over, not run it the way you think it should be run. Just be there and try to build some bridges and have some relationships with people. Because for generations, it's been the opposite. White and privileged people fighting integration, fighting going to a different school, a black and brown school doing it so poorly, acting hostily and violently towards the black and brown kids who do come to their schools. Like, yeah. I mean, it's it's a gross understatement to say there's been a, a breach and it's up to the one who made that breach, who caused the disruption, to fix it. So it really is up to us to fix it, to repair it, to do the work, to build the trust, to repair it. In order to fix this, I feel like white and privileged people need to listen and we need to 
be in community with and partner with and follow the, the existing community, black and brown community and families who are already at this school, have already been doing the work of, of fighting for their kids. And I think that when we enter these schools, we need to be humble. And this is not about saving other people or other communities. And this is not the magic of my privileged kids. It's This is not about imposing our agenda and our privilege and our white norm beliefs onto this school that we're entering. And hopefully if we can do this better, that we can build a new understanding of what community means. It's going to take a lot of time because there are many, many reasons why black and brown communities should not trust us. Uh, we've given them generations of examples and uh, they have very good reason to not trust us. So it's going to take time for us to work to build trust. And I don't, and, and that's generational work. I don't, it's not going to be like, oh, by the time my girls are done with elementary school, it'll be better. It'll be so much better. It really is generational work. I see that. There's no other way around it. This We have to do the work now. Because we've created the damage. We really have. I mean, I, we're, we're in this together. We live we live in the same city. We're in the same school. We, we're in the same country. It's about building a better society, building a better community, building a stronger community and society. This entire experience, from growing more and more uncomfortable at the former school, to making the move to the new school, to getting involved with the district, it's been one of reshaping community, reforging how Beth sees her family belonging, or not, in her city. It's been a profound shift between we and they. Living in a largely white and privileged neighborhood, Beth and her family felt, for the most part, that they belonged there. The girls had friends. Beth had friends. They had a community. And the fact that they were a mixed Asian family didn't seem to matter, at least not too much. But the disparities between the schools in her district and the opportunity hoarding that she saw at her daughter's school grew insufferable. She saw how the parenting around her was creating a sense of entitlement in her girls, that they deserved all the extras that the kids across town didn't have access to. Beth began to feel like she didn't really fit in with this community. She wasn't so sure she wanted to. She began to feel a little less weeness with her neighbors. After the Ferguson riots and the 2016 elections, she started to really grapple with how America values, or doesn't, the people who live here. The past few years have only added to her belief that the way we define who belongs, who we are, is intolerably, oppressively narrow, and it has monstrous consequences. It is this thinking that has led us to be increasingly divided and segregated, and being in a bubble grants us distance from the effect of it on a daily basis. Being in a bubble limits our we. One place where Beth felt that she could do something was in the choice her family made around school. She didn't delude herself that she would be curing racism in the U.S., but she could at least not support segregation, not support opportunity hoarding. Switching to the school across the interstate was a chance to build a different kind of we for their family now, and especially for the girls as they became adults. At the new school, Beth found herself in a community that she did not at all feel of. At the beginning of the year, she referred to the PTA parents as them. She felt pity for the financial resources they didn't have. She noticed the school's different rules, different rhythms, different ways. Beth couldn't help but compare the old school and the new school. She focused on the differences as a way to understand the decision she made. 
And while this was an important step in Beth's understanding of her old school, her new school, and herself, much like pity, she ultimately found that the focus on differences was distancing. Centering her own experience in an attempt to understand others couldn't get her all the way to being in community. She couldn't ignore the differences, to pretend that we are all the same and erase or minimize the real ways in which her life on the other side of the interstate was different. But having acknowledged these differences, she's now learning to find a way through them, to appreciate the school on its own terms, to find the joy in what the community is, all the messy, complicated, wonderful things that go along with being with other people. This felt like a step beyond fitting in to actually belonging, not only recognizing the ways we're different, but seeing how those pale in comparison to all the ways we are alike. This finding of shared humanity led Beth to a much broader and more inclusive we. Through the relationships she was making, she found herself caring for individuals and for the school much differently than she had at first. Pity slowly gave way to empathy. They started to feel a little bit more like we. But while she worked to build relationships at the new school, she was also losing them at the old one. Her decision to change schools was met with a deafening silence from her neighbors. This was painful for Beth, and she found herself wanting distance. They no longer really felt like her community, her we. Throughout the year, Beth wondered if her mixed-race identity made integrating any easier. She was used to ambiguous we's. She even found some comfort in the familiarity brought by being in between. But this identity also seemed to make it easier for her old friends to push her away. The community meetings in her neighborhood only cemented the distance she felt from her old neighbors and cemented her sense of we, or at a minimum hope for we, on the other side of the interstate. Since those meetings, a few neighbors have reached out to Beth, asking questions and wanting to talk about equity and segregation. The seeds she planted by her choice are finally starting to sprout. And so, here, as Beth embarks on her second year at the school on the other side of town, she's actively working to redefine her we. She's thinking differently about how to be in the world so that she might be part of building a different world. In many ways, it's a small act choosing a school for your kid. Beth's family is one among tens of millions, but... Tens of millions of small acts can add up to something monumental, radical, revolutionary even. In the powerful words of Professor David Kirkland. If if this country is to endure, we have to resolve this question about how we collectively can create a society that does not just benefit the few, but benefit all. And I do think that that is a question. It's a big question, but it is not an insurmountable question. It's a question that we can collectively grapple with and collectively address. And I do believe that those parents who decide to join in the project of power sharing, join in the project of bringing people together around collective empowerment, in order to rethink how we do schooling in this country, I do believe that those parents will gain benefits for their kids that they cannot even imagine. And and, and I do believe when some parents begin to make that decision, not only will they help to create better education systems for their kids, they'll be responsible for making better education systems for all kids. Their efforts will become the model uh, by which we will frame our future. That is the future Beth is thinking of as she works to redefine we for her kids. For all kids. Because those kids grow up to be adults. The next generation of teachers, politicians, police officers, parents. This is generational work.
So, Courtney, five episodes. What do you think? This is such a different experience doing this. It was very weird. Why did it feel weird to you? So it's weird being the narrator. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why we rewrote every interstitial about 7,000 times. That's an um, underestimation. <laughs> because it feels like the role of the narrator is to speak the truth. And I think we've tried from the beginning to recognize our lack of expertise and inability <laughs> to speak the truth about so many of these things. So yeah. it felt really weird to do that. It's Yeah. It's a lot easier to just interview a an you know, expert. expert guest <laughs> yeah. who's sharing their research. I think it's good to have those experts to to help guide, but um, I don't think that's the whole of what parents are actually experiencing in trying to integrate. Yeah. And so I, I felt like this was a an important part of the story because it was a deep dive into one person's experience. I mean, one of the challenges of this whole thing was just like how completely different a project it is from an interview. Given that Beth didn't set out to tell her own story, you know, the conversations that you had with her were not a sort of tell me what your year was. It was a much more of sort of let's talk about how you're feeling and what, what all is going on. That that to be able to tell the story from where she started, how she got to making this decision to the end point of feeling you know more of a part of community and, and, and where we are in this episode, we were going to have to do a lot of the work of storytelling. So I, it feels like there's a lot more pressure to say it right. And I think one of the things that has, has made this sort of terror of putting out this podcast over the past year a little more tolerable is that is the acknowledgement that we don't always say it right that we know that we're going to say it wrong in so many ways in so many places and and this yeah. format sort of took that away yeah i i i mean it took it away both like as we were producing it but i also worry that it takes that away too for for listeners right like are we setting ourselves up as experts we're trying to live up to that because that felt like the best way to tell this story. And so so you and I are trying to be reliable narrators here, but I feel really uncomfortable being set up as experts. You know, every step along the way, I feel like we have learned a lot. Yeah. I think if we're not kind of a little skeeved out, if we're not a little uncomfortable with something we said six months ago, we probably haven't learned very much in those past six months. Oh, yeah. You know, I know that Beth feels a little uncomfortable about some of the things she was saying at the beginning of last year. Right. And and it's hard to hear that back. She's like, I, I, I'm in such a different place now. Yeah. And so, like, to capture your thoughts in a moment is painful once you're beyond that moment. Oh, yeah. But I think that there's something, I, I think that there's something in in the transformation, in the time, in the journey, in the process, maybe that that is valuable. I mean, I, I yeah. do hope that we look back in two years when we've done seven more audio documentaries. God, <laughs> shoot me now. But, you know, like, I, I, I hope we have learned more and, and can identify, like, oh, that was terrible how we wrote that or right. put that together and we would have done it so much differently now. Right. I think that 
I think yeah. that means something. And not, I mean, uh, there's like, there's plenty of room to grow from uh, storytelling and technical making, <laughs> making good audio. But, but I think, right, the content piece, and that again, like comes back to this reliable narrator is like the reliable narrator is supposed to be sort of reliable in perpetuity. And that, that's what feels really weird. There it is. If, if we were to come back and re-narrate this story in a year, I would certainly hope we would do it differently. That's right. Yeah, I think that one of the things that made this scary for me to do or made me nervous about doing this, this podcast series at all is because we are really looking at the process that Beth went through over the year that if you only hear part two where she's kind of really in the middle of the beginning, you, you know, I think that's problematic. Yeah. Uh, b- because she gets somewhere else, right? So you could, you could excise that moment and say, like, this is why white and privileged families should not be allowed in black and brown schools. Right. Right. Like that, it, it makes sense, right? But I also think that that's a really important thing to share and talk about. If we are at Integrated Schools Podcast trying to be real about what integration and desegregation mean and not just be like a, a cheerleader group. If these are supposed to be really, truly honest conversations, you know, I, I, I think those middle spaces are critical, right? And I, and, and I think that there are a lot of people who are in those middle spaces right now. I've certainly been in those, right? right? And, and it feels like a little bit lonely. It feels a little bit unnerving. So maybe there's value in hearing other, other people in that middle space. Yeah, but that's sort of the point, right? We cannot just be cheerleading for white people to show up in black and brown schools because just that by itself is not enough. Yeah. And that by that by itself without anything else is not only sort of not enough, it's actually often problematic and potentially harmful. Yeah. And I think you don't get, I, I, I think it's really hard to get to the other side without some serious kind of self-reflection. And, you know, it's really hard to see the back of your head in a mirror, right? Like you, you, having other other people to expose things that you've been thinking or articulate things that have made you uneasy or point out mistakes, you know, like see yourself right. in mistakes that other folks are, have been making. I think that that's, that's a way to move beyond desegregation and toward integration. Yeah. I think it's really hard to get there in the midst of white supremacy culture, right? Right. You need tools to get out. And this, this may be as one of those. Yeah, a starting point. I mean, I think, you know, the other piece of it is like, it's clear, even in this episode five, it's not like Beth has arrived at Nirvana, and now she's got it. And now her work is done. You know, I think the like ongoing struggle, the fact that it is generational work, that it is going to take lots of people being really intentional and thinking about it. And as Beth says, screwing up and going back and trying again and trying to do it better and better each time. And then each generation to, Mm -hmm. to try to slowly dig out from this. And not just asking for forgiveness, but bearing the responsibility for for trying. But I think the willingness of Beth to go on recording is a lot of work, too. You know, yeah. she's an anonymous person. Her kids picked their own pseudonyms. Yeah. And, you know, we didn't mention what city she lives in. But her neighbors might recognize her voice. Right. And, you know, I think that 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 feels real and who knows what's going to exist out there in the internet of people talking about virtue signaling or whatever kinds of comments or that she's not doing this right or that she's not being thoughtful about X, Y, or Z. I think right. that, that feels really heavy to me. 
And I guess that's part of what makes the sort of reliable narrator role also feel somewhat uncomfortable because in in our past podcast to say we're just parents who are trying to figure this out as well feels like a much more comfortable place to be. The reliable narrator feels like we were sort of staking our flag in the ground of this is the way to be. Yeah. And, you know, I think we tried to do that as thoughtfully as we could, but but it still feels weird. It felt awkward to do, but it still felt like it was worth putting out. Why? It's not everybody's experience, right? Like Beth is driving across the interstate. Some people are just going down the block and choosing right. to not drive across the interstate to get their right. kids to the white school. So, you know, in, in her racial identity as mixed Asian is really different from mine as, you know, a white woman. So I think that there are places of this that are really unique to Beth's situation. But I think that there's more about this that speaks to our popular narratives around parenting and and school that her experience is challenging. And I think that this would have helped me when my kids were littler, when I was first on this journey. It would have helped me a lot. Yeah. Why was the story important to you? There are universal themes in it. Beth is one unique person, but I, th- I think her willingness to share as openly and honestly about the thought process and what she was struggling with and the way she was going through it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It definitely would have been helpful for me to hear this. And so hopefully it's helpful to somebody else. I mean, I feel like if, look, th- this was a lot of work <laughs> to put this series together. I feel like if Beth feels like we honored her story and somebody out there feels like it was helpful to hear her going through it, then then it was worth it. Yeah. And if not, please don't tell me. (laughs) Because it has to have been worth it. The music in this series was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. If you've listened this long, thank you. And please appreciate this free all-volunteer effort by leaving a rating or review, sharing it with your friends, and clicking the donate button at integratedschools.org so that we can continue producing this podcast. Thanks to Beth, Nadia, and Maya for sharing your thoughts and allowing us to beam you out into the world. And let us know what you thought. Find us on Twitter or Facebook at Integrated Schools. Send us an email, hello at integratedschools.org. And as always, we are grateful to be in this with you all as we try to know better and do better. Did you guys eat your breakfast at that first day of school? Oh my god, everything is just horrible. Cafeteria breakfast is horrible. I I like the breakfast. (laughs) Okay. It was good.